Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, News and Analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, April 23rd, 2021. We will be pre-recording a show to be aired this Monday, April 26th, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. At koop.org, many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 53rd post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight. And thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Pedro Gatos and bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis since we began broadcasting on Co-op Radio in 2002. Has been investigating and seeking to present genuine, truth-seeking perspectives of how U.S. foreign policy impacts majority populations around the world. We also seek to identify other human-generated behaviors that either create or aggravate human misery outcomes in the world that by definition are preventable and therefore reversible. Over the past 18 years, our record speaks to the veracity of our reporting. The impact of U.S. foreign policy in the world, on the world, population, is unrivaled in reach and in impact. Our presumption is that the U.S. population is a compassionate and social justice-driven people, that if we know the truth of the matter, we support policies that promote the most fair and democratic outcomes. The problem is, too often, we are misinformed by our government and our mainstream media. Therefore, this show is dedicated to critically evaluating all information before accepting it as believable and as worthy for becoming the foundation for building our worldview understandings upon. Tonight, our show is dedicated to the U.S. public's perception of Russia and United States foreign policy in Syria and the Ukraine under the new leadership of the Democratic administration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. We particularly address the elevating risk of a potential war scenario in the Ukraine between the nuclear powers. Dr. King implored us to seek to understand the enemy's point of view. Meanwhile, sometimes it's not so easy or clear to determine who the real enemy is. Special guest investigative journalist Mike Whitney provides a provocative geopolitical perspective tonight. Enjoy and reflect. All right, Alternative News listeners, welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. This is 91.7 KOOP, right here in the capital city of Austin, Texas. Today is Friday, April 23rd, 2021. We're pre-taping a show that will be playing this Monday in our regular time at 6 p.m., April 26, 2021. First, before we get going, I wanted to just share that we are really blessed to have Mike Whitney rejoin us. He's been a guest many times. And Mike, welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness. 
Thanks for having me, Pedro. Mike is an investigative journalist from the state of Washington, is where he operates from. He writes on politics and finances, but mainly what I've been fascinated about is his work around geopolitical interactions and the profound grasp that he shows in his work about kind of the power politics within the world around us. Uh, he writes routinely for the UNS Review, and with that being said, I wanted to start the show off by highlighting there was a person we've referenced on this show before, Mike. His name is uh, Richard Black. He is a state senator, I should say a former state senator from Virginia, Richard H. Black. He actually was many years in the service flying helicopters, actually got shot down at least on one occasion. He's a uh, elder member of the Virginia State Senate when he retired and was representing the 13th District. And he was in that position for about eight years that, uh, and then re- retired in 2020. He's a retired colonel, and he served in uniform for 32 years. So th- this is a guy that when you listen to him or when you read what he has to say, which we've been following for some time, it's, he's got a very powerful military background. He knows U.S. foreign policy when it's appropriate and when it steps outside kind of international rules of law. And he has developed a powerful critique of the United States' aggression towards Syria. In fact, he, I'm just going to highlight a couple of his quotes from a March 21st, 2021 speech at the Schiller Institute conference. And he said, I'm appalled by the indecency of, of American aggression towards Syria. He talks about and has talked many times before that we're told that we're fighting a war on terror, but we are not. We're closely allied with terrorists of al-Qaeda, are his words and his discoveries. He talks about all of these wars that we're in with uh, Serbia and Iraq, Libya, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Ukraine. And he says none of them have attacked us. You know, we've attacked all of them. And so these rules of law uh, that that we seem to just do what we want anywhere in the world, he's very concerned about. And he goes on to say that when you look at Syria, he talks about how our media doesn't really represent anything but the dominant narrative. And so you have to think for yourself. And he poses the question almost in a way like after 10 years of war, he says, I think it's important to recognize that not a single rebel leader has ever emerged as a popular figure in Syria. In other words, this is a proxy army. This was never a civil war. He goes on. He, he talks about the issue that Assad started it. This was a famous, I don't know if you remember this or not, I certainly do, but President Obama at the United Nations General Assembly in 2015, September 28th, indicated, let's remember how this started. Assad reacted to peaceful protests. He's talking about 2011 now and then created this environment for the current strife. When in fact, Richard Black reminds us, and we've mentioned it on this show in fact, that no, it did not start in 2011, that that is not truthful, that we had actually decided to attack Syria 10 years earlier, and he cites uh, Donald Rumsfeld ordered the Pentagon to draft plans to overthrow seven countries, including Syria. This was 10 years earlier in 2001 that Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld had ordered the Pentagon to draft these plans to overthrow these seven countries in the Middle East, beginning with Iraq, then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off with Iran. And again, he reiterates that not one of them had harmed the United States. And doing the research I found, 
some years before, in 2006, the U.S. Embassy in Damascus drew up detailed plans to destabilize and overthrow Syria. So this is fully five years before President Obama is indicating that Syria started it, when in fact the U.S. was meddling in the affairs of Syria at least five years earlier. In fact, cables provided by WikiLeaks revealed some U.S. diplomats questioning the decision to provide funding, saying that Syrian authorities would undoubtedly view any U.S. funds going to illegal political groups as tantamount to supporting regime change. That this combined with Donald Rumsfeld claims as well indicated that these were countries that were always under our crosshairs because they didn't do what we said in a real sense. So the last thing I just want to mention, Mike, I think it's important, is that when we look at this tampering in Syria back in 2011 of April the 18th, there was an article by Al Jazeera, and it was called U.S. Funded Syria Opposition Groups, and it says the U.S. government has secretly funded Syrian opposition groups for at least the last five years. This is in 2011, okay? And they go on to cite that it was a London-based television station, according to diplomatic cables released by WikiLeaks to the Washington Post. The newspaper reported that the State Department, U.S. State Department, had channeled up to $6 million since 2006 to a group of Syrian exiles to operate this TV station called Barada TV and to finance activities inside Syria. The financial backing has continued under the Barack Obama. I mean, he knowingly knows this. Yet in front of the UN, he claims that Syria started it in 2011. Yet he misrepresents it in front of the world at the UN. I find that just shocking. Later in 2015, in an interview with retired Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, the former head of the the DIA, he confirmed that we were monitoring jihadist groups emerging as opposition in Syria. He's referring to the classified DIA report that was presented in August of 2012, but was not declassified until 2015, in which he reveals that we knew, and the Obama administration knew, that the opposition major forces driving the insurgency in Syria were jihadist. This is well known that anyone that denied it in the U.S. government was not being truthful. And this, I think, probably, this, of course, predated all the Russiagate stuff. And I think this is really why they went after Flynn based on his very outspoken words. But anyhow, with that kind of introduction, you've been following Syria very, very closely. And I just wanted to get your comments on Richard Black's comments, also the current situation in Syria that you think is important. What elements are the most important for us to stay focused on? Thank you, um, Pedro. Um, you know, I hope you'll post a link to that because I think it's important that your uh, your listeners read the whole thing for themselves. It's really quite an amazing statement, and it almost makes you wonder if someone could make a statement like that today without being put on some kind of blacklist or something because it's really powerful indictment of U.S. foreign policy. But this is by a guy who flew, I believe it was over 200 military operations in Vietnam. And like you said, he was shot down at least once, uh, both of the guys who were on board the plane, aside from himself, were killed in place. So he's, uh, you know, his heroics are not in doubt, uh, neither is his patriotism. It's just these foreign interventions that it has him really concerned. So that said, what has been going on in Syria, it's hard to completely explain. It's been kind of under the radar. It seems like the media really doesn't publish much about it anymore. You have to go to the foreign press or to Russian media to get anything significant as far as updates on what's going on. But the United States has been building up its resources, its military hardware, and apparently building another base over there. Russia has been involved as well. I mean, uh, 
day-to-day basis, there have been a number of convoys that have been attacked and dis- uh, destroyed. If your listeners don't know, uh, Syria is split into two parts. About one-third of it is controlled by the United States and its assets on the ground, the uh, Kurdish party, that uh, the Kurds who actually are the uh, armed resistance on the ground. That's, that means about a third of the uh, state, with all of its main oil resources, are in the east. So they've been trying to export those to Turkey so they can be sold to Israel and, and other places that are interested in buying that kind of uh, black market oil. But uh, they've been frustrated because elements in al-Qaeda and the Russians have been bombing those. So it's, it's been kind of a struggle there. But you might remember, you know, for a little bit of background, I mean, for the last four years we've been dealing with the Russiagate phenom, which is basically the accusation that was never had any kind of uh, factual basis, that Trump was elected through the efforts of election meddling by Putin and his people in the KGB or the, the Secret Services or whatever. So it was anticipated that when Biden took office, that this four years of pent-up animus towards Russia would express itself in some kind of conflict almost immediately. Well, it's been four months now, and it's still early. People believe we're very close to an explosive situation in Ukraine. But as far as Syria goes, that really hasn't happened. The occupation has strengthened. The United States is not showing any signs of withdrawing. But it's been pretty much the status quo which is that there's an iron curtain along the Euphrates River with uh, Syria, Russia, and Hezbollah and elements from the Iranian army controlling the western part of the state, and the other part of the country is controlled by the United States and its Kurdish allies. That's all I'll say about Syria for the moment, unless you want to go further into it. Let me me ask you, before we do turn to Ukraine, a couple things, Mike, because I think it's important, and it ties back into some of the comments that Richard Black made in his presentation here earlier this month. He was mentioning that in 2011, right, we, you know, we we invaded Libya, we overthrew that country and turned it into a, a horrific human rights violation in and of itself. But the U.S. then turned over, these are the words of Richard Black, control of a Libyan airfield to the Turks who used it to transport advanced weapons that had been plundered from Libya and send them eventually to supply the terrorists that were being organized in Syria. So this Operation Timber Sycamore, 2011, this highly secretive Central Intelligence Agency Special Activities Center according to Richard Black, sent paramilitary teams into the sovereign territory of Syria to identify, train, equip, and lead terrorists to overthrow the Syrian government. There is never a moderate opposition. The moderate opposition is a major component of the false narrative that the U.S. public generally still believes today. Instead, it has been clearly documented, but it gets no airtime, no news coverage, that the tip of the spear, in fact, the overwhelming military opposition to the Assad government was terrorist-driven and still is. And this is what he's suggesting. But in 2013, he said Obama formalized this longstanding support for these anti-Syrian terrorists by secretly authorizing this program, Timber Sycamore. Can you shed a little bit of light on this Timber Sycamore program and just get people really to understand? Well, it's basically the same thing the United States has been doing with its intelligence services ever since the late 70s in Afghanistan when uh, they were fighting the Soviet Union through their proxies, the Mujahideen, that eventually 
evolved into both the Taliban and al-Qaeda. That's where Osama bin Laden got his origins as a fighter, or his chops, I should say, as a fighter. And since then, they've used these same jihadi yahoos to fight in Chechnya, to fight in the Yugoslavian War in Kosovo, the KLA. They've used them any number of places, and they certainly used them in Iraq as, as well as Libya, where they were being transported, armed, trained, etc., and funded by the CIA and uh, other intelligence agencies. I would presume M16 was involved as well. Mm-hmm. But this whole thing, you have to remember, like you said, it started 2011, 2012. It was only in 2015 that Russia had finally decided that they'd had enough, that enough of these countries had gone the way of Iraq and Libya. And they might have, you know, actually Putin might have felt more sympathetic, and this is terrible to say, but have he, if the United States had set up a regime that was more in traditional sense a, a dictatorship like the Mubarak, so they could have some stability in the region. But what was happening is these countries were being plunged into chaos with no end in sight and just balkanized and intensifying the chaos throughout the region. Mm-hmm. And this is destabilizing for everyone. And he begrudgingly never wanted to get involved. There's no one wants to take on the United States of America. You know, I mean, it's a that's not an occupation that really takes you well into the future, you know. So anyway, he did it begrudgingly because the United States uh, had allocated the use of a critical air base, Insulik, in Turkey, which meant that they were close enough to establish a no-fly zone over the entire central area of Syria, which means it would be plunged into the same chaos that Libya, the same road that they went down. So he just uh, stepped in before that could happen and prevented it from happening in September of 2015. Uh, amazingly, he hasn't achieved the victory he expected because the United States has you know, taken over land in eastern Syria, basically is maintaining the occupation there. But, uh, you know, it's been a struggle for Russia. It's been a sacrifice for Russia. But they yeah. have demonstrated that they're willing to put their own necks on the line if it's preserve uh, international security. It's, so it's a people respect them for that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good summary. It's a shocking reality that the American public is not aware of generally because it's not reported by the dominant narrative. But we began our air campaigns to wipe out ISIS, allegedly, one year before Russia got there. And because there was no dent in ISIS at all during that period or very little, uh, and then when Russia came to the scene a, a year later, they immediately started to heap great casualties on ISIS in an incredibly much, much more powerful way. And it kind of really revealed that our policy was not a war on terror. These are our proxy armies. Yeah, you remember the convoys of trucks exactly, that uh, exactly. went across the entire, I mean, there were it was like a... You know, a traffic jam for urban miles of these tanker trucks just stealing as much oil as it was possible. With all these and, satellite pictures, yeah. I mean, it was well known to everybody. It was like just ex- yeah. except the American public because it wasn't covered. Let me uh, just remind folks, we are having the great pleasure of visiting with the distinguished investigative journalist Mike Whitney from the state of Washington. This is uh, 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness. I wanted to go ahead and pivot to what you were turning to just a little while ago, and you can always come back to the Syrian theater as well, because I think these are two really important theaters. But President Biden, he appointed, before he became president, Victoria Nuland to the number two spot in the U.S. State Department. She's the one that really planned and organized the 
bloody coup that installed this rapidly, not just anti-Russian government, but a coup resulted in just half a dozen or more of neo-Nazis. You can trace their history, their words, their associations with parties and those types of things. But a coup government with a cabinet that was riddled with neo-Nazis, an influence not so powerfully seen since Nazi Germany, World War II. But she was also a very big architect of Obama's Syrian policy as well. So Russia must have gotten some type of understanding very quickly about what they might expect from a Biden foreign policy by the people that he actually appointed to these positions. But as vice president, Biden also was the key Obama administration liaison to Ukraine. He visited Ukraine six times in seven years. Of course, John Brennan was there right at the round the coup time. And I think it was like on a fake passport. And at first they denied he was there and, and all of that. And then they said, oh, he was just there to help them with their security issues and not to create or promote any type of bellicose activity against the separatists and such. Can you pick up the story there about Biden's very involved presence in the Ukraine as vice president for the Obama administration? Well, yeah, as you said, they have assembled the same you know, war hawks and neocons who were in the Obama administration. So there's no surprise on Putin's part about what's going to happen. The tensions are going to be exacerbated and it's going to be basically on a warlike footing for the next four years at least. But, you know, that said, you know, the last two weeks have been extremely tense because the United States has been arming and training uh, the military and uh, incentivizing them to go to war to this area called the Donbass which is the Russian-speaking eastern area region of Ukraine that has remained basically not under Russian control, but it's been an independent statelet within the state that the the central government in Kiev has not been able to reassert its power over. So they eventually uh, agreed after a series of wars where the Ukrainian army was badly beaten back to adopt the Minsk Treaty, which allows for some sort of uh, federalization of the country, and certain powers are going to be maintained by the indigenous people to those regions. So, you know, it's like if uh, Texas had its own language and its own customs, and all of a sudden the the central government in Washington, D.C. said, we're going to crush you people, we're going to impose our own government, and we're going to make you speak our language, blah, blah, blah. There might be some treaty that they would come up with to split the difference so that the country could live together in an integrated form without insisting that the customs and traditions of those people be abandoned entirely. So that's kind of what's happening right now. And they know that if they provoke these people, that Russia will step in on their behalf. Now, it's very odd because there's so much, you know, insightful language on the Internet talking about this. And a lot of people have close ties over there. And and most of them are saying, well, if they get involved in this kind of struggle again, defending their homes and their region, then uh, when Putin comes in, he should go straight to Kiev and topple the government. But I think you know and I know, having seen how Putin works over the last 20 years, that that's probably not going to happen. And it wouldn't resolve anything because from a political point of view, you know, Putin has to keep many things in mind. The reason they're operating in Ukraine to begin with is because Ukraine forms a buffer between Russia and the European Union. And it's also a transit country for pipelines for both oil and natural gas. So they need the revenue. Uh, Ultimately, he wants to prove, Putin wants to prove to Europe that he does not pose an external threat to them. He wants to expand this free trade zone that both 
Russia and China are participating in in Central Asia and Asia. And so they really don't want to risk things by seeming like a wild card and out of control, a reckless uh, militarist. So he has to really walk a tightrope in trying to achieve his political goals while at the same time defending the people who he has to defend because they're basically Russian people. Well, and it's not just that. It's his own national security of his nation. I mean, when we're judging Russia, we need to remember the United States. We would not even tolerate missiles in Cuba, but Russia is not supposed to react to a a total encirclement of its borders by the U.S. NATO allies. I mean, the Ukraine in and of itself is a further 1,400 miles of boundary between NATO and Russia and pretty much complete the encirclement Exactly. Uh, of, of so in, in 1990, when the Iron Curtain, when the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union collapsed, the United States and NATO, their representatives, promised Russia that they would not move one inch eastward. And since the unification of Germany, they have added 15 countries to NATO, all of them on Russia's western flank, pushing further and further eastward towards Russia. In violation of that agreement, right? Britain. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the history of... Uh, both Barbarossa, the German invasion in 1940, and the invasion uh, by France under Bonaparte, uh, there's a long history of Russia being invaded from the West. So it's something they have to be really cautious about and take seriously. And now, like you said, they have missile systems, nuclear missile systems, deployed in Romania and prospectively in Poland as well. Those are you know, like 500 miles from Moscow. This is a serious threat, a threat the United States would never allow on its borders. And by the same token, as you know, in South Korea, they're building a similar system that will increase the encircling of Russia. So Mm -hmm. these are all things that the moving eastward of NATO, which is a constant threat to Russia's survival, existential threat to Russia. And then there's the open hostility. I mean, in the last two weeks, they've had these huge exercises and maneuvers on Russia's border. NATO has with 40,000 troops and all kinds of heavy equipment and armored vehicles. And those things are only there as an incitement and a provocation, just to tweak their nose and to say, like, hey, we can come in and beat the heck out of you, because that's a long 2,000-mile border that they have to protect. They have to take that deadly serious. Mike, thanks for outlining that geopolitical perspective from the Russian national security point of view. We need to take a quick break, and I want to remind folks that we are visiting with Mike Whitney, and we will be back in just a flash. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness. Stay tuned. 